All right, at this time, um, Paul, if you can please come up and share the word with us. Uh, Paul is on the staff at Liberty River Words, and uh, we thank you that you're here with us today. Please share the word. All righty. Well, I am, as he said, on staff uh, with our sister church, Liberty River Words, in the Fishtown, Kensington area. And it's my pleasure to be with you this morning to look at God's word together. As we prepare to hear from God's word, let me just start uh, asking you a question. What do you believe about God? When you think about God, is there a picture or character that comes to mind? Do you think of him as a kind fatherly figure? Maybe you think of him as sort of an old uh, man with a big beard portrayed by Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel. Maybe something more ridiculous, like uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I have a few friends who might think of God as a power-hungry dictator who harshly hands down impossible rules with nebulous rewards. You know, being in church, we don't really like to think of it that way. We want to think of God as our kind, loving, heavenly Father. But often, we may still have a sense of uncertainty about God in the back of our minds, some sense of his displeasure or anger, even if we don't really want to admit it. Is that at all familiar to you? As we turn to our sermon text today in John 2, verses 13 to 25, I want you to keep this question in mind. What do we believe about God? What do you believe about God? Hear then God's word from John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, And when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. You know, these verses from John are pretty amazing. Not only do we get to see a side of Jesus that we don't often get to see, we also see a structure in John's writing that is just really intricate. He writes with a purpose, and he purposely is calling us to believe something about God. At the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us that he's writing this so that we may believe and have life in the name of Jesus. So he's telling us something about God here. He's telling us that God is our Savior who wants, to be, wants us to be with him. And so as we think about believing what we believe about God, we need to be reminded of this. Our main point today, God is our Savior who wants us to be with him. John 2, 13 to 25, fall neatly into three sections that all work together to describe God 
and his work of salvation. It starts with God the Father's plan. The first thing, we are reminded of the work of God through history, the problem that we face, and the promise that he's made. Next, we see the Son's solution. Jesus shows us what it looks like to come before God and then teaches us how. And finally, we see the reality of salvation, that we're not left alone. We're not left without help. So to start with, what was God the Father's plan? When we first come to this text and read about Jesus driving out the money changers and making a whip of cords to drive out the animals, it sounds pretty different. That's not what we normally see Jesus doing, right? Reading this may confirm some of that negative view of God we struggle with. But let's take a moment to think about the context of these verses. Now, what's going on here? First off, verses 13 to 20 and 23 provide a key time marker for when these events are happening. It's the Passover of the Jews. Now, John's Gospel wasn't written to give us a chronological, linear order of Jesus' life. He's writing these uh, pictures of what it looks like to believe in Jesus, what Jesus' life looked like, and how we can have life in his name. So when we come to the context of the Passover, it stands out as something that's important. These verses form a tight drama around Jesus' experience of the Passover. Do you remember what the Passover was celebrating? Passover was the remembrance day for the time that God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. These events can be found in the book of Exodus. But one of the things that stands out from the book of Exodus and that fits this passage in John It's God's reason and plan for saving Israel. God had told Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to enslave the people, to let the people go so that they could worship God. Exodus 5.1 was the constant message to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That feast was a time for Israel to worship God, to be with him. God saw the evil and oppression of slavery, He also saw the repression of true worship that was going on. And so God worked miraculously to save his people, to bring them to freedom and the ability to worship God. Now, God had promised a severe judgment against all the Egyptians who would not listen and obey, the death of their firstborn. It's that sign of the Passover, that event of the Passover that is being remembered here. Those who believed God and obeyed him were passed over. But Pharaoh and all those who did not believe God suffered the death of their firstborn. After the Israelites had left Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, and God taught them about worship, told them what it was to look like. And as God taught them and was speaking to Moses about worship, he reminds them, saying, They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The worship of God was the recognition of his presence and his promises. God with his people was the promise. And that's what worship is all about, being able to meet with God, to come into his presence. God gave them clear instructions on how to do this. He didn't just say, come. He said, come in this way so that we can be together. God's desire and goal was to live in the midst of his people, to have community, to have fellowship. He loved his people. He wanted them. And that's God's initial and continuous posture towards his people, is that of love, of wanting them to be with him. God's anger, on the other hand, had to be provoked. 
And that's what we see as Jesus enters the temple. Now, what does he find there? Uh, People ready and able to worship God? People seeking to live with God in their midst as he had offered? No. He finds market stalls and financiers. You know, instead of the people coming to remember the wondrous salvation of God, his love and care, to have that special time set apart to worship, Jesus finds noise and confusion. The people brought their business and selfish agenda into the very house of God and ignored what God had taught them. They were not showing respect for God. They didn't respect his plans and his provision. The people weren't meeting with God. They were instead trying to provide for themselves. And so Jesus acts to clear the temple, to restore the house of God to a place of prayer, a place of reverent worship. Think about that in terms of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, God himself come to earth to live with humanity. He's the fulfillment of that worship, of God being on earth with people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But you notice he doesn't take offense personally at what the people are doing. He doesn't act as if he himself is being disrespected. Instead, he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And here we see one of the beautiful mysteries of God, the relationship between father and son. Jesus sees the people ignoring and abusing his father's desire to be with his people. And instead of taking judgment into his own hands at that point, Jesus instead shows faithfulness to God and leads the people by example. He removes their distraction and degrading of the worship of God and points them back to the Father of who they should be there to worship and be with. And that's what the disciples saw in verse 13. And that's what the disciples saw in verse 17, sorry. Verse 17 shows us the disciples linking what Jesus did at the temple with Psalm 69, the psalm that we read as our responsive reading today. The taste we got of this psalm shows us the cry of one who's desperately holding on to the truth in the face of great uh, oppression and hardship. He's holding on to the truth that God is real, that his promises are sure, and that he will save. He's holding on to the promise of God's presence and wants to be in his presence. And that's how we are to come and worship, holding on to the truth of who God is, his love, his promise of salvation, of redemption for us. That's how Jesus wanted to come to God to meet with him, with the other people. That's how Jesus wants us to meet with God, with our Father. So what do you believe about God the Father? Returning to that question, you know, it's tempting to believe the lie that he's only angry and judgmental. But if anything, this whole Passover temple scene shows us God's patience and long-suffering. He longs for a relationship with his people, be able to spend time with you and with me. But the fact is, we share the same problem with the people in the temple. We don't remember who God is and what he's done. And I know that, for me, I often take for granted who God is and believe wrong things about him and make it just comfortable. I ignore the good he's promised and seek instead to provide for myself. I don't want to worship God. I just want to enjoy life. And if you've done that too, then we're both sinners. God's judgment is just, and we both deserve to be driven out of his presence. And that's the problem that we face. And it's a pretty serious problem. 
Sin, our rejection of God, our ignoring and disobeying his command, results in our separation from God and ultimately our death. Yet there's a glimpse of hope. Remember Psalm 69 and that we read earlier. We started with verse 5 where David the psalmist acknowledges his own sin before God. He's a sinner yet holding on to these truths and these promises, wanting to worship God and be in his presence. Even though he's a sinner, he goes on trusting God because of Jesus, because of the promise that Jesus fulfills. Because in the midst of confronting and correcting the sins of the people, Jesus stands as the ultimate solution. The Son of God, Jesus, is the ultimate solution. Now, if you're familiar with this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, have you ever wondered how Jesus got away with it? Why isn't part of this story about how Jesus was thrown out of Jerusalem for disrupting trade? Why didn't that happen? It's sort of surprising that there's no uh, uproar and kicking Jesus out and claiming that he's disrupting the legitimate business practices of the day. But instead, the Jews ask for a sign. In both John and the other gospel accounts, Jesus' cleansing of the temple is followed by times of teaching. The leaders definitely didn't like losing their business. We see throughout the different gospel accounts that they immediately start plotting against Jesus, but secretly. It seems that the people saw that Jesus was doing what was right. Jesus' actions were clearly obedience to God and couldn't be faulted. Now, it's this tension in the people that draws out more questions, and especially that question for a sign. They wanted him to prove his authority. In the context of the Passover, I think we might hear the people asking, what right do you have to tell us how to worship? Moses showed us signs of God's power and authority. What can you do? And Jesus answers by telling them about a real sign that sounds impossible. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. That sounds impossible. The Jews thought so because they understood him to mean that building there in Jerusalem. You and I might think it's impossible because the text tells us he's talking about his own physical body, about life and death. But when you think about it, this is the best possible sign. It is the fulfillment of all of Moses' signs. The signs Moses performed in Egypt pointed to God's authority over the natural world, over the gods of the Egyptians, over life and death. The Passover particularly showed God's power over life and death. And the Passover reminded the people of God's justice. And it showed how God's justice would be satisfied by a a substitute. Part of the Passover was those who believed God were to Uh, slaughter a lamb, and its blood would seal and protect them while they ate the meal. Think about this in terms of the temple and what the temple represented. The temple was the place where God dwells with his people. To come to the temple, the people needed a sacrifice, something to take away their sins so that they could meet with God. Jesus, as Emmanuel, as God with us, as the temple himself is offering a sign that would be that ultimate sacrifice, taking the full punishment due for sin, death, and yet coming to life again. That's the salvation plan that God is promising. That's the good news that we share. Jesus' death, the destruction of the temple of his body, was the ransom price needed to pay the debt for sin, to bring us forgiveness, to bring us back into God's presence. 
Jesus' resurrection on the third day fulfills God's power over the natural order, giving new life. This is the sign that Jesus offers to the Jews here. Jesus offers them the solution to the deepest problem. And this is what Jesus offers to you and to me. Jesus takes the place of sinners driven from the presence of God. He does this so that we can be forgiven and restored to God's presence. Jesus sees the problem of sin, and he offers himself as the solution. Do you believe that? It's a question that we keep coming back to in John's Gospel. Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe that he came to save you? However you're answering that question this morning, it's important to then consider, if he has saved us, what's the reality of that salvation? It's easy to say that sin is bad and Jesus forgives, but what does that really look like? Is it just that simple? What's the reality of our salvation? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think John 2, 13 to 25, give us a great uh, example of the realities of salvation. And the reality is that salvation is at the same time harder than we expect, yet better than we could hope for. Now, that may sound a bit contradictory, so let me explain. First, what makes salvation so hard? When we read this passage, we may think it's hard because it requires perfect reverence and obedience to God. Jesus comes into the temple and rebukes those selling and trading. He shows them that there's something that they need to be doing, something else that they need to be doing. And he shows us the reality of God's holiness, the need to see and treat God with as perfect, as good, as righteous. He shows us the pain of sin, his own disappointment in humanity's weakness. He doesn't condemn them for trying and failing. He rebukes them for ignoring God's instruction and making their own rules. God's rules and requirements about worship weren't put there for the people to earn their salvation, to prove to God that they could be holy too. God gave them structure so that they could know what is pleasing to God. God's temple was a place for the people to meet with God and receive his salvation. Jesus did the hard work of perfect obedience, and that was always the promise that someone would come to do that hard work. Jesus does the hard work of perfect obedience, of being the one who perfectly pleased God. When we think of our salvation and all the rules that God gives, we need to understand that it is a high bar and that Jesus is the only one who has been able to keep it, perfectly keeping the law. Jesus did the hard work, and he gave us that record of completion. When you first understand that, it's amazing. It's life-giving. We are truly forgiven, given the perfect righteousness of Christ. And praise God for that. But as you keep living, there's something difficult still about being saved. Jesus kept the law for us, but there still seems to be some sort of expectation, isn't there? So what do we do with that? Why does, why does our salvation still seem difficult? And I think that difficulty comes because salvation requires humility. Salvation is a free gift. We can't earn it and we'll never deserve it. And it requires us to lay aside our pride and self-righteousness, to say, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And that is really hard. It's not like, you know, going out with your friends and someone buying you dinner and you're, you're grateful for it, but you know you can pay for yourself or pay them back later and it'll all work out. 
Now, accepting Jesus' righteousness requires us to let go of our own efforts, of our own power, of our pride. And that is really hard. And it feels like death. Romans 6 describes it this way. You know, when Jesus saves, he saves through death and resurrection. We have to die to our sin. We have to realize that our selfish desires, our hold on power, and the small ways that we tarnish God's holiness needs to be put to death. Romans 6, 10 to 11 say this. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Salvation may start out feeling like death, but it ends in life. Salvation starts a process to bring us into new life, into a relationship with God. Jesus died once for all to take away our sins and rose to give us that eternal life. That once for all death immediately restores us, immediately grants us pardon so that we can be assured of our forgiveness. But what happens when we're tempted again? What happens when we sin again? This is where it gets even better than we expected because we are still forgiven. We are still given that new life. And that doesn't mean that we don't need to worry about sinning. Sin is still death. It still needs to be seen as separating us from God, as distracting us. But in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment struggle of life, Jesus helps us see our sins as death and how we are to turn from them and live out his righteousness. He continues to forgive and trains us how to live out the love of God. In Christ, the rules, the laws, stop being a crushing, impossible weight that leave us hopeless. And instead, Jesus shows us how they help us love God and enjoy him. Salvation starts that relationship with God when, where we are taught to see him as our father, our kind, loving, heavenly father, and relate to him as his son. He trains us for righteousness, teaching us how to truly live and enjoy life. And he invites us into his heavenly home, a place where we can grow and thrive. That's what makes it better than we could expect. That's the reality of our salvation. And the text rounds this out with the last three verses. Verses 23 to 25, you know, when you've read them, it might sound a bit strange. Jesus has been uh, showing and teaching about life in God's house, and it seems like the people are starting to warm more and more to the idea. But then we read, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What do we do with that? How does that make salvation even better? I think it shows us two things. First, we see that Jesus really wants that deep, personal relationship with him. Salvation isn't a free ticket that we can just trade around and take if we want. It's deeply personal. It's a heart and soul connection. It is free. And we can't do anything to earn it. And Jesus saw that he had a lot of popularity, that many people were believing because of what they saw, the signs that he was doing. But Jesus knew that belief based on a fad or just on popularity wasn't going to actually save people. Their spirit needed to be engaged. The people's heart needed to be transformed. 
What makes salvation even better is that God takes it really seriously. It's not something that was trivial or without cost to him. There was a great weight. There's a lot of thought that went into it. And that takes us to the second thing that these verses point toward. The relationship with God that salvation brings requires the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We saw in verses 13 to 17 how God the Father promised and planned for salvation. Verses 18 to 22 tell us the work of Jesus, the Son of God, working out salvation. And this last point that we've been talking about now, the reality of our salvation, it's really the reality of the Holy Spirit. Behind this description in verses 23 to 25 is Jesus' expectation of the work of the Spirit. Jesus knew that the people who believed just with their eyes but without the Spirit wouldn't last. We need someone to continue to teach us about God, to bear witness to us about who he is. And that's what the Spirit does. When Jesus starts teaching about the coming of the Spirit, he calls him the helper. The rest of John's gospel continues to develop this theme of the coming of the Spirit as the helper. And in John 14, 16, we read Jesus saying to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What makes our salvation even better is that we're not left alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us. He's helping us, and we can cry out to him. So when we struggle with belief, when we see the weight of our sin, the burden of the law, we can turn to the Spirit, asking him to help us understand what's going on, understand more of who God is, more of his love, how to see the law not as a burden but as a joy. He reminds us, the Spirit reminds us of Jesus' perfect obedience that covers us. We can rely on the Spirit for growth in our relationship with God. It's the Spirit at work with us that shows the reality of our salvation. And so talk to God. Talk with God. Pray to the Spirit. Pray and listen for the leading of the Spirit. Our response is the same as the psalmist in Psalm 69, bringing our struggles with belief the fears that we have, the pain that we feel, with the confidence that God is listening, that his spirit is with us, and that his salvation is assured. Let's do that. Let's pray. Holy God, you do meet with us. You have given us these words to train us. Help us in our belief. Help us to know the truth of who you are, to see your kind fatherliness. Help us to see and understand the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. Holy Spirit, work in us. Work in us new life that we may live and enjoy the salvation that you give. God, thank you for the gift of your son, for coming to take away our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being among us, for revealing God more and more to us each day. Go with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.